You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome to the Bible for Normal People. This week's episode is a reissue of episode 85, The Bible and Lives of Transgender People, with our guest, Austin Hartke. Enjoy. Suddenly, we've got this person who's gone to the temple to pray, was almost certainly not allowed into the temple, being both a foreigner and a eunuch, and yet he is welcomed in entirely, in his entirety, into Christian community by Philip, where, you know, the eunuch says, is there anything that can prevent me from being baptized, from becoming part of this Christian community? And Philip doesn't even have to answer. He just baptizes him, and the eunuch doesn't have to change anything about himself in order to be welcomed in. Hey, Austin, welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Pete. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, fantastic. Listen, we thought we'd start just by our listeners getting to know you a little bit, telling telling your story and just who you are, where you're from, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, my name's Austin Hartke. I am an educator and, well, gosh, I'm a lot of things right now. A typical millennial, I have about 8 million jobs, but I work specifically <laughs> in theology that's inclusive of transgender and gender diverse identities. And so part of what I do is work to help parents and family members support their gender diverse kids and try to create community wherever I can with other gender diverse folks who I also identify as Christian and want to talk about that faith and to help support them. And I wrote a book about all of this stuff that came out about a year ago now. So since then, I've been sort of taking things on the road and working on building up community because so often LGBTQ plus people in general are sort of told that they can either choose their identity or their faith. They kind of have to pick one or the other. And so working with other LGBTQ plus Christians at bringing those things together for folks so that it doesn't feel like, you know, you have to choose one or the other, because so often that's a choice that's not only sort of a false choice, but it's also a really difficult choice. So helping people bring those things together is what I like doing best. Yeah, and and maybe to dive a little more into your story, would that have been a a decision that you would have been a, a binary decision you would have been faced with uh, in your in your journey? How did your how did your story um, un, unfold? Yeah. So let's see. I grew up in non-denominational evangelical churches till I was about 10. And so those churches were not uh, not especially LGBTQ friendly. And so I grew up hearing a lot of negative things about people of different genders and sexualities. And that was sort of my first introduction to Christianity. They were a wonderful, you know, a lovely group of people and they loved me and my family, but there was this undercurrent where you would hear these negative things about, you know, about LGBTQ plus people. And so as a teenager, kind of early on in my teenage years, I started trying to figure out more about my own, you know, myself and my own sexuality. And I came out as bisexual when I was 15. And so having had that experience in sort of the conservative non-denominational world, and then when I was about, let me think, about 11 or 12, my family moved into a conservative Lutheran church. And so it was sort of a different kind of, (laughs) a different kind of conservatism that really had the same views about LGBTQ plus folks, even though a lot of other things were different. And so I sort of grew up through those early teenage years having this idea that Christianity only existed in places where, you know, that Christianity was also constantly bad-mouthing people of different sexualities and gender identities. Hmm. So, okay. Well, I mean, you would identify as a, a Christian now, yeah? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did you navigate some of the, that 
that for yourself, where Christianity was presented as, if you're a Christian, it means that uh, you are against gender diversity and different sexualities to coming to embrace that for yourself. Maybe say a little more about that. Yeah. So, kind of the way the story unfolded for me was that after I came out as bisexual at about 15 or 16, I kind of, having grown up in that either-or scenario, I decided that the only way I knew how to move forward and sort of live as a full human being was to choose that sort of identity part of myself. I kind of thought, well, if I have to choose, the only way I know how to survive is to choose, you know, to survive and be alive as myself. And so for a long time, I sort of pushed Christianity away. And because I hadn't had, uh, I didn't have a good sort of reception to that first coming out. And so I thought, you know, for a while, I thought maybe this is not for me. Maybe this isn't the community that I'm supposed to be in. And so I kind of went through a period of searching in my sort of late teens and early 20s and kind of tried to find another sort of faith community that I would feel at home in and that would sort of accept me as I was. And I learned so much, like there's so much I appreciate about other faiths that I learned about during that time because I wanted to go experience those communities and and learn more about the way different people practice faith in different communities all over the world. But nothing resonated with me the way that Christianity did. And so I was kind of at this tough spot where I thought like, this feels like my spiritual home. Christianity is my spiritual home, but I've been sort of like shut out of that home and I don't know what to do about that. And so it wasn't until my early 20s when I started finding LGBTQ plus affirming Christian communities. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, wait a second, you mean you don't have to choose? Like it's possible to be part of both of these communities? And that was really my way back into Christianity was finding those communities and realizing that that was possible and realizing not only is it possible, there are a lot of LGBTQ plus people doing really cool things in Christian communities. So that was sort of my way back in. The strange thing about being transgender is that I came, had to come out twice in a way because I came out as bisexual at 15 and then I came out at, as transgender at 26. <laughs> so I went through two different coming out processes and they both sort of dealt with the wrestling that I had to do with Christianity and how Christian communities responded to issues of sexuality and gender identity. Well, Austin, you mentioned, you know, wrestling. Is it fair to assume you might have had some post-traumatic stress associated with this? Because you found this new community where you see, well, Christianity seems to be like compatible. You can actually honor both sides of who you are. But was that like an easy transition to make for you? Because, I mean, you, what you've been hearing your whole life is something very different, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was, um, I think, something – how would I categorize it? I'm not sure I would categorize it under the sort of post-traumatic stress bubble, but I would say that there was a lot, a lot, a lot of sort of toxic theology that I had just sort of taken in and I had to deconstruct. So for me, what that looked like was I graduated from college at 22 and at that point made sort of a firm commitment to Christianity because I chose to get baptized. I'd never been baptized before growing up in an evangelical church that didn't do infant baptism. It was always sort of assumed like at some point you'll grow up and you'll get, you'll decide to get baptized. But 
by the time I would have been making that decision, I was already in a period where I was pushing away from Christianity. So I didn't get baptized till I was 22. And at that point, I started deeply looking into the sort of theology that I'd grown up with and trying to figure out what parts of it I mean, you know, everybody kind of, I think, maybe has to tease out, like, what is the culture and what is the sort of spiritual origin of different parts of my faith? Because, you know, throughout Christian history, we've always had to do that. Like, what is Greek culture versus what is the spirituality that we see in Paul in the New Testament? You know, we have to kind of tease those things apart. And we are still trying to figure out how to do it today. And some don't even do it because if you're part of the dominant culture, you know. Exactly. But exactly. You, don't have, you, you have the luxury of not having to do that, but most yeah. others do. And you certainly did. Yeah, it's true. And so, I decided what I was going to do to try to pull all of this apart was that I was going to go to seminary because I thought that the people at seminary would surely have all the answers about faith. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Which of course I realize now that was kind of a naive way of going into it, but I had grown up with such a, a sort of veneration for faith leaders that I, you know, you're, I was sort of taught as a young person that like the person leading your church, they know it, they have all the answers, they figured it out. And so how to become that person? Well, you go to seminary. So I ended up going to Luther Seminary about a year after I graduated from college and tried to sort of start unraveling this stuff, unraveling this faith and trying to figure out what was what it was all about. But at the same time that I was doing that, I think for a lot of folks that I know, at least, seminary is a time in which you're not only deconstructing ideas about like theology that you've picked up, but you're also having to bring down a lot of walls around yourself that you've built up because you're trying to relate, you know, authentically with your community and with God in a way, in a sort of like immersion way. It's almost like going to seminary to me felt like an immersion language program. (laughs) Like you're really getting put into this community that is focused on you know, relationship with each other and with God and how we're going to do that in the world. And so it involved me kind of taking a step back and looking at myself and going like, okay, I thought I had this figured out. I thought I'd figured out the faith part. I thought I'd figured out the sexuality part, but there's one part left that I haven't dealt with and that's the gender part. And so it was during my time in seminary that I started coming out as transgender because it just seemed like something that I couldn't really ignore anymore if I wanted to be real in these communities. So maybe to uh, bring the Bible into this a little bit, and you know, as you're doing this through seminary, how did your view of the Bible begin to shift throughout? I mean, I guess from the time you were 15 and you started to integrate. Well, I guess during that time you had said you you weren't really interested in the church or in Christianity for a while. So when you when you did come back. How did, how did the Bible play into that? What was your relationship with the Bible at that point, and how did it change? You know, I came into seminary with a idea that I wanted to be a youth minister, and that was because I had been doing that sort of as a lay person in my churches that I was involved with, and I kind of thought, like, this is a good way to sort of make this more of a career. And I came in, and within the first semester that I was at school, people were coming to me, you know, friends were coming to me and saying, like, I think you're in the wrong program. And I was like, why? What's What gives you that impression? And they said, well, you're taking Hebrew for fun. You realize you don't have to take Hebrew, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, you're right. All I wanted to do was sit around and read the Hebrew Bible and read these sort of foundational stories and foundational texts of 
our, you know, our faith tradition and many other faith traditions as well. And it was mostly because those were the texts that had been used against people in LGBTQ communities for so long. I kind of had this feeling like there's something more going on here than you know, Old Testament angry God, New Testament loving God, like (laughs) there's got to be something more to it than that. And I really wanted to dig in and figure it out. And so my first sort of falling in love with the Bible came when I was in that first year of seminary where I started reading some of the Old Testament stories and especially learning more about how Hebrew, the language worked and how our translation matters. Well, what was one of those stories that really maybe gave you an aha moment that you started seeing things differently? Was any anyone come to mind immediately? Um, I remember being totally bowled over by the theology, both Christian theology and Jewish theology, actually, around the stories about Joseph in Genesis, and, and especially Joseph's coat in Genesis 37. That was sort of the first time that I was like, wait, hold on, what's going on here? There's there's more here than I thought. So I, I remember, you know, as a kid in Sunday school, learning about Joseph and his coat of many colors. And you know, hearing that story and kind of going, oh, that's cool. But then when you start reading it in the Hebrew and you looking in, you start looking into more of the cultural mores surrounding that story, you learn a lot about who Joseph was. So for instance, in the story of, of Joseph's coat, when he gets that coat, we've translated it as a lot of different things, that coat. We've translated it as coat of many colors, as coat with long sleeves, as coat with fringes. We're not totally sure how to translate the words for Joseph's coat. Or also the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Exactly. Also That's a very favorite. important That's translation. That's probably the most uh, academic <laughs> translation of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so the reason we've got all these different translations is because we don't know what that word means. In Hebrew, it's ketonet pasim, and we don't know what those words mean. The reason we don't know is because, you know, as you're probably familiar, when we look at translating other languages, we have to find some context. So we look at other places where those words or, uh, or phrases show up. And the thing about that phrase for Joseph's coat is that it only shows up one other place in the whole Hebrew Bible, and that's in 2 Samuel in the story of uh, Tamar, which is a really sad and horrifying story, but it's used to describe what Tamar was wearing. Um, She was wearing the same thing, a ketanet pasim, and we get this sort of aside to the reader in 2 Samuel that says, this garment was a dress worn by the virgin daughters of the king. And so, given the fact that there is that only those two places in the whole Bible where that particular garment is mentioned, and it is specifically given a use and a context in that Second Samuel text, both Christian and Jewish scholars for centuries have talked about how Joseph's dress, how the way that he dressed was very sort of gender nonconforming. And of course, people will often pair that with, you know, Joseph being uh, bullied and beaten up by his brothers and, you know, attempted his attempted murder by his brothers. And also Joseph's reaction to Potiphar's wife later on in the story, where he seems to have, uh, you know, no interest in Potiphar's wife. And people have asked whether that has something to do with his gender or his sexuality. And so that was sort of my first introduction to like, oh my gosh, maybe there are people that are outside of the bounds of gender and sexuality in the Bible, and we've just never really, I've never really heard about them or talked about them. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. 
You know, what I find interesting about that example is that, I mean, I can see people disagreeing strongly. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just take a word from there and help it explain how that word is used elsewhere. But they argue that way all the time about other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start seeing connections like that, it's like, this proves that and that. And, and you're, I mean, you're, you're doing something similar. We're reaching for context to try mm-hmm. to understand. And, like, isn't it interesting in the Tamar story, <laughs> the only place, and it's sort of described in a certain way, and how might that help us understand this other story over there? That, that's a perfectly legitimate way of reasoning because everybody does that. People build dissertations on that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. There actually, I read a really interesting dissertation recently about the connections between those two stories because in both stories, the garment, the garment that Joseph wears and then the garment that Tamar wears are both used as evidence of their physical harm. You know, the coat's smeared in blood and brought back to Joseph's father. In Tamar's story, the coat is brought back to her family to prove that she was sexually assaulted. And so in both cases, you've got similar things going on, not just with the words, but with the context of the story. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Are there would, there, would there be other biblical texts as you've kind of gone along in this journey that you found have, have similar maybe significance to you as a transgender Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm such a, a big nerd about, a, especially the stories in Genesis and Exodus, but... Yeah, we're um, picking think, up on that, Austin, by the yeah. way. You're a total nerd. Go ahead. Hey, this is NerdFest 2000 yeah, I was here. Say, yeah. we're, we're into that. Yeah, we're, we're totally into this. Go right you, ahead. You had, me at, uh, you had me at, I was reading a dissertation the other day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is stuff I do for work. It's not that I sit around reading it for fun so much, even though I probably would if I wasn't doing it for work. (laughs) But no, I think, you know, one of the other stories in Genesis that I especially appreciate is Jacob wrestling with the angel or possibly wrestling with God in Genesis 32. That story is such a powerful one for so many transgender folks that are taking on new names. Because of course, that's a story in which you've got this person with this one identity coming into contact with God and attempting to take a blessing from a God that had never, you know, to your knowledge, hadn't blessed you before. Like, even though we see through the story of Jacob and Laban, like, you know, clearly God is blessing him. But like, the idea that he is in a relationship with God as himself for the first time, and in that moment, he refuses to let God go unless he receives a blessing and then also receives a new name and then walks out of that relationship and that moment in relationship forever physically changed by that with walking away with a limp is something that I know a lot of transgender folks really connect to when we read that story in Bible studies. Like that's a story that people kind of say like, that's my relationship with Christianity, with God, with faith. I wrestle and I wrestle and I wrestle and I can't come out of it until I've received that blessing and I've received that recognition of my identity and then I'm forever changed after that. And so, it's a really powerful one in, in a lot of these communities. Well, let me, this is, I mean, I, I think that is, I think that's a great reading of the text of its potentiality, let's say, for mm-hmm. how it can affect people at different times and places. Let's let's talk about maybe a hermeneutic, a way of because here's the thing. I'm 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 hearing voices in my head where people will say, Yeah, that's really nice, Austin. That's got nothing to do with this story at all in its original <laughs> context. So mm-hmm. but the thing is, there is a hermeneutic that you're that you're employing, an approach to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, flesh that out a little bit. Help help people understand how 
like how you're appropriating the story because it might help them understand a little bit more about just what's going on here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the first thing that I always try to emphasize when we're talking about these biblical stories is that we don't want to be anachronistic. We don't want to go look at a text from 2000 years ago and say, look, there's a transgender person, because that's not a thing. Like, <laughs> well, this is the concepts that we have around gender now are completely different in many ways from the context, you know, in which the Bible was written in many different times and places. And so we don't want to try to be anachronistic and say, look, there's a person who's exactly like me. But what we can look at is experiences that are similar. And we do that all the time in the Bible, right? When people are going through hard times, we talk about Job. And when people are dealing with like really tough issues, like around fertility and things like that, we talk about Abraham and Sarah. Like we're not saying these people are one-to-one the same as us. We are saying that they dealt with similar issues and they reacted in similar ways. And so that's kind of one of the ways that that I find helpful to look at how was this person treated? How did they react? What was the world around them? What was the reaction that the world around them had? And you can find similarities in those actions and those responses rather than the identities that are not going to be the same. Stay tuned for more Bible for Normal People. We are supported by Faithful Counseling, an online counseling platform that matches you with a licensed professional therapist that you can meet with online or over the phone. While I grew up in a faith tradition that said getting support from a counselor was a lack of faith, 2020 doesn't have time for that. I'm grateful that so many Christians are starting to recognize the importance of mental health. I had the chance to talk to a counselor from Faithful Counseling this year while I was going through some personal transitions, and it was a great experience. What I appreciated most was the screening process at the beginning. So if you want a counselor who has a religious background and you want to talk spiritually or biblically, you can. But if you don't, you can do that too. For me, I tried a few different counselors before I found the one that was a good fit for me. So be sure to go to faithfulcounseling.com front slash B4, that's the number four, B4NP for 10% off your first month. That's faithfulcounseling.com front slash B4NP for 10% off your first month. Hey everyone, my name is Brett Davidson, and I'm a part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. I hope you're enjoying another awesome, riveting, mind-blowing discussion that Pete and Jared are having right now. Thankfully, they also have a Patreon page where you can learn even more from these masterminds, as well as connect with some really cool Patreon members. They've got videos, graphs, maps, courses, and other really nice perks just for a dollar a month can get you access as well. So just check it out, patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. Now, these episodes would not be possible without a group of powerhouses called the Producers Group who continually improve and make this possible podcast what it is today so as a way of saying thanks we would like to mention some of these people by name peter e watts mike cook kara mosley patty brown steve sutton dave oakley brenda elser and cheryl kopik thank you and thank you listeners for pardoning this interruption (laughs) now back to the podcast well, I appreciate that because I feel like some people who read the Bible, it's like uh, whenever it's not their community or it's a different group of people who have different challenges or different identities, then it's all of a sudden an inappropriate way to handle the text. And I think you were getting at this, Pete. Mm-hmm. But yeah. whenever kind of the dominant culture does it, oh, well, that's just reading the Bible. And so, you know, we can be saying, 
oh, it's perfectly legitimate to say, uh, be still and know that I'm God and have a whole sermon on how that means to put your cell phone down, <laughs> you know, at dinner. <laughs> but but for a transgender Christian to appropriate Genesis 32 is inappropriate. And it's like being able to see that this is the hermeneutic of what it means to make meaning from the Bible today because we're not ancient Jews and we're not first century Romans. And if it's going to be significant to us, we have to be able to bring it into our current context and the the challenges we face and who we are. There's something really important to hearing how other people besides kind of the dominant culture and dominant narrative do it, because sometimes we can just say, oh, well, that's just what you do and not see that, that that's a decision that we're making and that we have to make to make the Bible relevant. Mm-hmm. I think that's especially noticeable around the conversations that we have about sort of the nature or you could even say gender of God. We realized this, I guess, relatively historically recently, but in the grand scheme of things, but the idea that like for so long, we read God almost entirely as male all the time and sort of just went with that and said like, that's just the way it is. And people didn't seem to like the people that were in charge tended to be male. And so that was like, (laughs) it just was sort of the way it went. And it wasn't until we realized like, wait a second, if we talk about God only as male, always, 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 and with only male descriptors, and we never talk about the female representation of God in the Bible, then, you know, people who are female, people who are outside of the gender binary, even if you want to take it that far, don't get to experience the text as being relevant to their lives and don't maybe don't even get to experience God as being relevant to their lives because we've only talked about God in one specific way for so long. And we we do that with so many other things too with respect to how God is described in the Bible because man if I have to think of God as a potter I'm in I'm in a lot of trouble. I've never I don't even <laughs> I've never potted a thing in my you know it's just I mean we do so we think I mean God's a CEO you know, um, God's a family man, you know, that kind of thing. We, we mm-hmm. tend to use our values to talk about God, and that's, that's, that's quite natural, I think. You know, so in a way, you know, why is it good for some people to be able to do, they can do that, but other people can't do that, which is sort of the point Jared was making, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to privilege, it's whenever we sort of take our narrative and our perspective and privilege that as though it's the real thing and everything else is an alternative My favorite story with that is, I think I've shared before on the podcast, is I was in a class on metaphor, and the professor at an unnamed school kind of was tying himself in knots because the students were wondering why God as father isn't metaphor, but God as mother is a metaphor. So, Mm. he was trying to make the case that, well, yeah, God is a mother in a metaphoric sense, but in a very essentialist sense, God is a father. Like, God is... Mm -hmm essentially male and takes on the metaphor of female and and just like to see him kind of tie himself in knots and all of us just kind of look at him in wonder um it it was just that like we want to privilege our own experience and the essential thing is that is when god is more like me it's kind of at the center of who god essentially is and whenever Mm -hmm. god is really not like me that's a metaphor and yeah it's okay i guess um (laughs) and so yeah it's an indictment of our own privileging, I think. Yeah, it's something you run up against all the time when you're, for instance, looking for theology books, because a theology book means a theology book written by a straight, cisgender, white guy. (laughs) Whereas then you have to get feminist theology and queer theology and womanist theology and black theology and all these other things that have, you know, descriptors in front of them. But when you just talk about theology, you mean white, straight, cis guy theology. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's what we should put on every theology now that doesn't have an adjective. Straight white, <laughs> straight white cis theology has to be the new adjective. Well, you know, this is as good a time as any for a little commercial here, Jared, because we have t- t-shirts in our merchandise that says, old <laughs> yeah. theology has an adjective. Yes, right. <laughs> so, so go that's there. That's the commercial. Bible so. for normal people. Thanks, Austin. Com. Thanks for making that work. Yeah. Of yeah. course. Glad to do it. I meant to do that all along. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Austin, let me ask you if there are, like, what are some passages that you get attacked with? Like, what are the clobber passages? And like, you know, to, to help people be more sensitive to maybe how some of these things might affect people, like, are there others that you hear a lot, like the go-to passages or something, just tell you you're wrong? Yeah, I mean, we've got, they're sort of the seven-ish or so passages that people use against people of different sexualities. And I think we're all kind of familiar with those at this point. But the ones around gender that people tend to use around trans folks, I find super interesting because it's sort of a evolving thing as people have been looking for more ammunition, especially in the last 10 years, because now that transgender folks are more visible in society, I think folks that are not happy with that are kind of going like, oh, let's, we got to scramble to find some reason. No, 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 (laughs) Austin, you don't understand. All all they're doing (laughs) is rightly dividing the word of God and being discerning. Of course. And we shouldn't ask questions about who's rightly dividing and why it's them doing that dividing. (laughs) Well, we'll let you know when you're rightly dividing is when you agree with us, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. Anyway, I interrupted you. Go ahead. (laughs) No, it's totally okay. No. So, so for the last, you know, few, I shouldn't say 10, it's probably been more than 10, got to be 15 or 20, but people have pointed to three specific passages when they're trying to make a point about trans folks. One of them, I would say like the most, the most clear cut one sort of is Deuteronomy 22.5, which is the one that says, you know, men shall not dress in women's clothing. And that's the one that seems to be the most relevant, I would say, and might be the one that would make the most sense as an argument based on the <laughs> based on the context around that verse though we have questions about what that actually means and so it's the it's a question when we look at that verse it's a question of how deep do you want to go on the on the text study because if you're going to say read it in the king james english it says what it says then sure then it does say what it says but we still even in that point have to hold it up against stories of people in the bible who did seem to dress in ways that were unseemly for their gender. And another person we often hold up is is Deborah, of course, the only female judge who, you know, did things like going into battle, which she was specifically not supposed to do based on women not being able to pick up weapons of war or be in battle scenarios. And so we've got to hold even a text like that that seems very clear cut up against the things that don't match it in the rest of Hebrew scripture. So that's the one I, I guess that would be most clear cut. Uh, the other two One is Genesis 1, of course, where God creates people male and female. And so people kind of go, all right, there, it says it, male and female, that's it. So what do we do with people that don't, you know, identify as the sex that they were assigned at birth? And the interesting thing about Genesis 1, well, two interesting things. One, I think if we are speaking from a point where we recognize that not everything in Genesis 1 
is 100% literal. So like we have to be already at that point in the conversation before we can really well, move forward. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. we got to shut it Stop down. There. We're shut deeply it down. disappointed in your exegetical skills. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. All right, carry on. But, uh, but when we look at things that exist in the natural world that don't exist in Genesis 1, we can see some patterns. So the pattern of the poetry in Genesis 1 is very obvious, right? God makes this thing and that thing or separates this thing and that thing, and then it was good. And that repeats over and over throughout Genesis 1. So you end up with all of these pairs and binaries, sun, moon, land, sea, day, night, all of these binaries that exist. And yet we know that in the natural world, there are places in between those binaries There is dawn and dusk in between day and night. There is coral reefs and estuaries and marshes that exist in between land and sea. And so we know that things exist that aren't listed there in Genesis 1. And so we might... Amphibians. Amphibians, exactly. Uh, The platypus is my favorite example. Just completely uncategorizable even today. (laughs) And so we've got all these things that exist outside those binaries. And so what some scholars have said is, let's take these not as two binary options, two boxes, but instead let's see them as a list of spectrums that exist. And we might include male and female as a spectrum, because it's not surprising when God creates humans, God separates them into two the way everything else is separated into two. And knowing that in the natural world, intersex people exist kind of complicates that. So if you're not familiar, intersex people are people that are born with differences in sex development that may be noticeable right when they're born, but it might not be uh, until later in life. And it might mean that they have chromosomes or hormone levels or internal or external reproductive organs that don't all match up all down the line as male or female 100%. And so since we know those people exist, we kind of have this same idea like we do with amphibians and the platypus that like might we might be naming a larger schema here rather than trying to divide the world into two boxes. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, or, I mean, how about this? How do you feel about the, it's just weird priestly theology. <laughs> I you know, mean, I mean, and not, yeah. <laughs> not, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but it's just, it's a way that priests might have thought at a particular time in human history and they're sort of imagining everything along those categories because, you know, you've got the whole pure and impure thing that works mm-hmm. in that as well. That's a binary, right? Yep. So, so you know, it's, it's, it's rather – it gets even more complicated, you know, when you keep thinking through this stuff. It's like, where, where does it end? I don't know, but I do know that there's more going on here than a surface-level reading of these stories in the Bible. There's a lot more going on. Exactly. And I think, you know, my favorite way of sort of complicating the text is by holding them up against other texts in the Bible that seem to say something different. And that's, so the third, the third text that's of, of the three that's used sort of against trans folks is Deuteronomy 23.1, which is specifically a prohibition against castration. And 
We're not totally sure why that prohibition is there. We have some ideas that it might have been because so many people living around the territory uh, that the Hebrew people were living in at the time did practice castration as a form of corporal punishment. And um, and so it was something that, you know, the people of Israel kind of said, this is not going to be part of our culture. But so you've got this prohibition against castration in Deuteronomy. But the problem is when the Hebrew people and the Israelite people are taken into captivity in Babylon and Persia, where castration is super common, a bunch of people experience castration. We know some people were castrated as part of being taken into slavery. We also have some evidence that some people might have chosen castration as a means of sort of moving through the cultural world of the time. Because if you're going to choose between being a brick making slave or the person who keeps the king's harem and gets to eat and have a place to sleep. Sometimes that was worth it for some folks. So we've got this, you know, this change in culture that happens between Deuteronomy and Isaiah, for instance. And so when the people of Israel are coming back and they're trying to rebuild after the Babylonian and Persian captivity, they're kind of trying to figure out, do we still need to pay attention to this verse in Deuteronomy? What do we do with all these people now who are eunuchs and are living outside of the bounds of gender and sexuality in a way that was not you know, formerly something we'd allow. Right. So, because because changes happen, like culture changes. Exactly. I know that's a, that's, a, that's a dirty word for people. Like, well, you should never let culture affect how you think of your theology. But I'm not sure that's even possible. But um, as culture changes, right, you have to questions are raised that would not have been raised at an earlier point in time. Exactly. And that's why it's so fascinating when you get to Isaiah chapter 56, which is my favorite, you know, that was my dissertation was Isaiah 56. But yeah. it's, uh, there's this point in Isaiah 56 where there is a welcome given to eunuchs, people who are castrated, uh, welcoming them in and specifically saying, you're going to have a place in the community. You're going to be able to be allowed into the temple to worship. You are now going to be part of this community. And so there's this fascinating move where it seems like God is changing the rules in response to a cultural change that the people were going through. And so you get this incredible change in Isaiah. Now, of course, the problem is some of the other folks that were trying to rebuild were not a big fan of of this change, this idea of letting people in, eunuchs and foreigners who are not supposed to be there, right? And so we have this idea that this change never actually occurred because we get sort of a conflicting account in, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So skip all the way ahead to Acts 8, right, where we get the Ethiopian eunuch. Suddenly we've got this person who's gone to the temple to pray, was almost certainly not allowed into the temple being both a foreigner and a eunuch, and yet he is welcomed in entirely, in his entirety, into Christian community by Philip, where you know the eunuch says, is there anything that can prevent me from being baptized, from becoming part of this Christian community? And Philip doesn't even have to answer. He just baptizes him. Right. The eunuch doesn't have to change anything about himself in order to be welcomed in. And is it also in Matthew, uh, where Jesus talks about eunuchs, and some are eunuchs voluntarily, and mm-hmm. some some are eunuchs for the kingdom. I forgot the exact phrasing. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, it's uh, Matthew nineteen, and it's uh, Megan DeFranza pointed that out to me a few years ago, and exactly, I'm like, yep. oh, okay, I never really noticed that. Before. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's fascinating, but it sort of changes things. It does because there's this point where Jesus recognizes three different kinds of eunuchs, right? And for a long time, because that passage that where Jesus is talking about eunuchs comes in the context of him talking about marriage, you know, people. People have read it as Jesus talking about celibacy for a really long time. But when we look at it and think about the fact that eunuchs 
actually did exist at the time that Jesus was alive. And at that time, we also know because in the Talmud, in the Jewish collection of, of oral law, they recognize intersex people. And so they knew that intersex people existed at the time that Jesus was living. And so when Jesus says that there are some people born eunuchs, you know, people doing intersex theology have said like, hey, that's us. Like people are born with different bodies and that's okay. Right. And that's that seems to skip the Sunday school lessons, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. You know, nobody really likes to bring up castration too much. <laughs> no, that's not like the VBS flannel graph thing that happens there, I no. guess. No, and in fact, that's one of the things that Megan DeFranza points out, is that we changed it from actual eunuchs and actual castration into celibacy because we realized as Christians that we couldn't get any more converts if we kept asking people to castrate themselves. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, well, you know, another thing you're pointing out here, Austin, is something that just this this is relevant for any attempt at sort of bridging the ancient world with the present moment, and that is you're pointing out the diversity of the Bible itself, mm-hmm. where that has to be taken into account. Otherwise, we're simply privileging certain verses that happen to rest easy with us as opposed to some others, mm-hmm. you know. Well, Austin, we've been talking about biblical passages, and maybe, you know, one practical thing for people is to recognize these contexts, recognize where they're coming from, and see that there are other ways of reading that don't necessarily lead to the conclusion that God or the Bible condemns transgender Christians. But I'm wondering, what are some practical things, as you've, you know, traveled the country and talked to a lot of Christians, what are some practical things that you can advise Christians on as they welcome transgender Christians into fellowship and into the church and as they're maybe still wrestling with some of these uncomfortable feelings or maybe that we haven't convinced them fully here on this podcast that the Bible really is okay with all of this? Just what are some practical things? Yeah, I think there <laughs> honestly it's hard to try to you always want to privilege what the individual person in your community needs versus you know what somebody on a podcast is telling you that they might need (laughs) because you know them right so i always try to find out like how can you get to the point where you can have conversations with the people in your community about these issues and you have to start by figuring out how you can get comfortable with the with the conversation topic. So if you're somebody who's like, oh my gosh, I'm so afraid to talk about transgender stuff. Like I don't know anything about it and I'm afraid I'm going to use the wrong words and somebody's going to yell at me. Like do some reading up um, and get familiar with some of the language and some of the what to do, what not to do. Um, So for instance, uh, one of the things we were talking about before the podcast started is how the word transgender works because a lot of people, you know, will use it as sort of a noun and say like transgenders. And the way that the word works is actually as an adjective. And so you would say a transgender person or a transgender Christian or a transgender man, a transgender woman. So it always is a descriptive word. So like something like that, where you pick up more about how the language works, how to talk about it, because once you are more comfortable with the topic and once you kind of have a feeling like, sure, I'm going to goof up and like it's going to be, but I'm going to be in a comfortable community where, you know, people aren't going to be super offended. They're just going to gently correct me. Then you can start actually having conversations with people in your community. So I always recommend try to do a little bit of digging yourself, get a little bit more familiar with the topic. That'll also give you some, it'll spark some more questions for you that you can ask. And the other thing I always suggest is find ways to be in conversation in your community as a group rather than, I think one-on-one conversations can be tough because a lot of times when I say like, go have a one-on-one conversation about this stuff with somebody, people hear that and they go, okay, I'm going to find the one transgender person in my church and I'm going to go grill them about their life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's not what I'm advocating for. Uh, What I mean Mm -hmm. is, 
if you can have more general community conversations about this, say for instance, your church has a coffee hour between services or something, and something comes up in the news about gender identity, try to have like a coffee time where you talk about these issues, like the the news thing that comes up and have people talk about their feelings, their ideas, maybe bring in a book to read together. Because when you're in community together like that, there tends to not be as much pressure on one single person to kind of explain things to everybody else. It tends to be a little bit more comfortable because you're all going to probably say some goofy stuff and that's all right, (laughs) rather than putting all that pressure on one person to say the right things. Excellent. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here. So you mentioned earlier that you had written a book. So maybe give us the the details about that and places where people can maybe learn more about you, the work you do, or have some resources as they go along here. For sure, yeah. So my book is called Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. It's available you know, everywhere online, Amazon, all that, and you can request it from your local bookstore. It's also available as an audiobook, so you can get it on Audible and on Amazon as well, which is uh, pretty cool. I narrated it myself, so if you are a fan of my voice, you'll hear more. And let's see, you can find more about me at austinhartkey.com. And it's Austin spelled with an E, like the author. And that'll give you links to my YouTube videos that I make, to a lot of the other work I do, the speaking work that I do. And I also, I should give a plug to an organization that I do quite a bit of work for called Gender Spectrum, which is an organization, a nonprofit that works to support gender diverse youth and their families. And I am the faith coordinator there. So if you are the family member of a transgender person and you want to do some more work on bringing your faith and your understanding of gender together, you can reach out to me at Gender Spectrum as well. Yeah, sounds great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. And I think there's a lot to to think about in terms of the Bible. And I love those different perspectives, which is exactly why we need to be in conversations with people who have different life experiences than we do, because it can really open up the Bible to new things. So thanks for bringing that. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you, Austin. See ya. See ya. Thanks for listening, folks. But before you go, a quick plug to come visit us at our YouTube channel. There we post our podcast episodes, author spotlights, and all sorts of brief videos on things like, does the Old Testament even matter? Or the Bible and raising kids and all sorts of other videos about the Bible. What is it anyway? And what do we do with it? And you know, a lot of that content comes from people like you who drop us questions at thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash askpete. Check it out, submit a question, and you might make it onto YouTube. Wake the kids and tell the neighbors. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thanks, as always, to our team. Executive producer Megan Kamick, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion Stephanie Spate and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire team here at The Bible for Normal People, thanks for listening.